Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining moi from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the downstairs in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. at it again life 2.0 podcast a little bit of kick in my step this morning uh, i've been up since never mind long time by the time you're hearing this and that's the thing about podcasting it could be days after i i lay this thing into the uh, audio vault but it is early in the morning here in chicago this is the sweet spot for me usually between about 3 30 in the morning and about 8 30 9 o'clock in the morning that's when I get most of my work done. Then I kind of sit around the rest of the day and watch wrestling videos <laughs> or football videos or other things uh, like the Three Stooges. So that's kind of how my day rolls. And then I go back to doing writing in the afternoon, so it's like a split shift. But um, up early today, uh, working on this book, I'm so excited about uh, with uh, former catcher for the Chicago Cubs, Randy Hundley, gold glove winner, all-star, one of the guys that when I was growing up was a hero of mine, and to... Uh, be able to circle back decades later and and help write his life story has a lot of meaning and moment for me. So I want to get that as right as possible. And uh, working with uh, Randy is, uh, it's a little surreal, I got to tell you. And this whole past week has been a little surreal for me. I want to try and get all of this in. Uh, but first I have to address this one. Uh, I'm a huge horror film fan. It all comes back to my dad who... When I was growing up, he would build these haunted houses in our basement uh, when we lived on Berto Avenue in Chicago. It was his big Victorian-type house. And I'm pretty sure when he bought the house in 1966 for 18.5, big money back in the day, that one of the selling points was the fact that you could enter the basement through the backyard. And he must have seen this as the perfect entrance for the haunted castle. And I'm not kidding. Uh, you know, I miss my dad so much. He's been gone since 04. I got pictures of my mom and dad, of course, here in the uh, highly vaunted and respected Aurora Media Production Studio. And so when I'm in here working, they're, they're always uh, top of mind for me, as are some of the other relatives I have here and other friends of mine that have come and gone. I got a little memorial kind of table going over there. Uh, but my dad was, um, was a great guy. He's a banker, uh, some, somewhat reluctant banker, always wanted to be an architect. But I think what soothed the, the itch in him to be an architect was building these haunted houses every year to some degree. Uh, but that's just half of it. So he built these haunted houses because he also grew up loving horror movies as a kid. And it's mostly science fiction stuff. But Dracula was his guy. Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, the whole thing. And he would basically turn into Dracula from the first week of October all the way through sometimes the first week of November, depending on how crowded it got, when people would come in to our basement and get the shit scared out of them. This went on for 20 plus years. And this was no low-level production. Um, this was high-end back then. They'd take the basement, they'd get a bunch of cardboard. First of all, they'd take everything out, and they'd, my dad, I could just see him at work designing. You know, he's supposed to be working at the bank. He's designing what the basement would look like. I actually have some of his renditions here. And my cousins and other friends of his would come over, and they would just build this thing. It was incredible, really, uh, way before its time. Back then in the 70s when this was going on, late 60s, 70s, there was not the big productions they are today where you stand in line for three hours and pay a hundred bucks, get the shit scared out of you. This was a quarter 
people would pay to get in. And my dad did it because he loved basically to scare the crap out of people. And I think it will also offset this whole life of a banker that he had, you know, for nine months out of the year, 10 months out of the year before he could start building on the, uh, the horror in the basement. So he gave me the love of horror movies. And back in the day here in Chicago, and I know in other markets, they had this thing called creature features and the music was great and dun, 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 and fog rolls in and coffins slam and we're going to scare the crap out of you. So I love that stuff. And it has stayed with me all these years. Creature features doesn't exist anymore. Uh, when I see the Halloween stuff going on now, it's become so overblown in some degree that it's, it's kind of like kind of misses it for me, but I kind of keep it my own way. And my dad did too, so much so that when he passed away, we put his Dracula cape that my mom made for him. It's a double team there for Halloween in with him when he was cremated. And um, I know he would have enjoyed that. So when I think of the horror movies, I rank them in order of how, not how scared I was, but the horror movies to me first were Wolfman because it, I don't know why I just connected with this guy, right? You know, Lawrence Talbot, uh, not of his own choosing, he gets bit. And next thing you know, every full moon, he's running around killing people, right? So the whole thing with Lawrence Talbot and, uh, you know, the, the Wolfman was like the number one thing for me. And then ca- underneath that came Frankenstein because the film itself is iconic. And Boris Karloff's portrayal of Frankenstein monster is iconic. Just as Lon Chaney Jr. was iconic playing the werewolf or the wolfman, because there's a difference. Wolfman is not the same as a werewolf. They're two different things. Go look it up. And then underneath that was Dracula. And underneath that was the mummy. And under that was the creature from the Black Lagoon for a long time. And that probably was in the 60s and 70s. You know, you'd see these things on TV now and again, and they'd be at the theater here and there. And they'd been running for 20 years by the time I started watching this stuff. But then in 1975... I clearly remember going to the theater to see the Creature of the Black Lagoon that had been reissued. Now, originally, it had been done in uh, 3D, and that's when you'd go back in the day. This movie came out in 1954. You'd go to the theater, and they'd give you those glasses. I think one, one lens was red, and one was green, and you'd sit there, and you've seen these pictures of people sitting there with these glasses on, a little made out of paper. You'd turn them in, and when you walked out the door, some people kept them. Anyway... That came out in 1954, but in 1975, it was re-released. Same deal, 3D. And I can clearly remember going to the Portage Theater with a bunch of my buddies, walking up to Portage Theater, uh, probably a two-mile hike at that time, in the snow backwards. Uh, it's probably summertime. But going to watch The Creature from the Black Lagoon. It was the first movie I ever saw in 3D, and it was fantastic. And... I think right after that, I saw House of Wax with Vincent Price in 3D or something. But The Creature from the Black Lagoon was the first movie that I'd seen in three-dimensional. And somehow it went from the bottom of the list to the top of the list. And then over the years, I started thinking about that because I put thought into shit like this. Why? Because that's how my brain works. And I started thinking about the the Universal Monsters entire kind of lineup and roster there. Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula, Mummy. Black Creature from the Black Lagoon, that whole, you know, the top five, I guess you could say. And they've all been remade to a greater or lesser degree. But when the Gill Man got to the top of the list for me, I think I realized that he's the only quote monster that I just use quote fingers, by the way. You can't see him, but take my word for it, I did it. And he's the first monster that was like a reluctant monster. So you go first with the Wolfman, right? He gets bit, becomes a monster, kills people. 
Now, he didn't ask for that, but he became that. Then you got Frankenstein's monster who was created from a bunch of body parts. And he created as, as a monster because Victor Frankenstein thinks he's playing God. So there's your monster rampaging the countryside. Then you got Dracula. Dracula's bit back in the day, becomes a vampire, lives for millennia, and just lives off people's blood. Then you got the mummy, who, because some guy goes into a tomb and unearths him and does Ang Tsunam and reads some creepy script, he becomes live and he's killing people. So they're all bent on revenge. But you got the creature from the Black Lagoon minding his own business in the Amazon. And pretty soon, the whole idea of uh, somebody finding this this hand sticking out of a, of a clay embankment next to a river in the Amazon turns into this big search looking for what could have, you know, where would that have come from? And it's this, this skeletal-like fin-covered hand sticking out at the beginning of the movie. And in the 3D version, it's like right in your face, you know. So anyway, there's a hand sticking out. It's a claw. And this kicks off the whole premise of the movie where they're going to look for this gill man, this fish man. And of course, he's just being the guy in his backyard. He's swimming around eating fish, not bothering anybody. And then here comes this whole deal where the expedition comes in and they're trying to get him because he's worth millions of dollars. And you got the scientist arguing with the adventurer. The adventurer wants to cash in. The scientist wants to study him. And mayhem ensues and all kind of hell breaks loose. And the gill man's killing people left and right. They eventually, uh, you know, find him. And at the end of the first movie, he just kind of sinks. You're not sure if he's dead or not. He comes back for two more movies, of course, Revenge of the Creature and The Creature Walks Among Us. He didn't ask to be put in that position. And I started to think, empathize a little bit. How many times in my life I'm thinking, just leave me alone. I'm not bothering anybody over here. You got to poke that the gill, man. You're going to get the shit's going to be coming your way. So I've always enjoyed that film. And so much so that three years ago or so, I came across this um you know you're going to get a tutorial in horror movies today, did you? But I'll get to some other stuff here shortly. Uh, about three years ago, I came across an online horror mask kind of emporium. And these are Hollywood replica lifelikes. And it, I mean, all the big ones are there. And they're amazing. And I said, I got to have one of them. And so I looked at the top five. You got Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula, Mummy, and the creature from the Black Lagoon. And they're all perfect. I mean, this is amazing. My dad would have loved this stuff. And automatically, I didn't even think about it, I went right to the creature from the Black Lagoon and I bought the thing. And it costs, yeah, it costs a few bucks, but so what? And, you know, we'll pay for our memories, right? So this thing arrived and it's sitting here. If you could, I wish, I, I might take a picture. I don't know where I'd post it, but this thing is sitting here. Every morning I walk in, there's the creature from the Black Lagoon Greeting me. Now, to be fair, on the left is a Wolfman model that I built from the 1960s. Now, that cost a few bucks. And on the right-hand side is Godzilla. And that whole area to the right of me over here, I'm giving you a little descriptive tour of the studio, has some of my stuff there that reminds me of another time. And to me, that's what movies do. And these artifacts do and these uh, reminders do for me. Every time I come into the studio to work, I am surrounded by things that are important to me to a greater or lesser degree. And they remind me of somewhat why I do what I do. I still have a Dracula model in a box that I haven't opened yet. It's got something to do with my dad. I got to figure that out. It's like, I don't want to build it. Because if I build it, eh, it maybe should just stay in the box. Anyway, all that's connected to the fact that Riku Browning, who played the creature from the Black Lagoon in the underwater scenes, passed away 
last week at the age of 93. And when I read that, I got sad. I'm like, oh, shit. First of all, I didn't know he's still alive, so there's that. The second part was, ah, man, the Gill Man died. And it was pretty amazing, really, when I did some digging. And I knew a little bit of this stuff anyway of how the movie and how the movie even happened. Uh, in 1941, there was a dinner party during the filming of Citizen Kane. And producer William Allen was played a reporter in the movie. He wasn't a producer yet, but he was, he was playing it like a small parts. When Mexican cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa told about the myth of a race of half fish, half human creatures in the Amazon River. And he wrote that night at the party, Allen did, uh, story notes entitled The Sea Monster. Ten years later, he used Beauty and the Beast as the inspiration, writes the story plot. And then in December of 1952, a guy named Maurice Zim expanded this into a treatment which Harry Essex and Arthur Ross wrote as the creature from the Black Lagoon following the success of the 3D House of Wax, which I mentioned, but I didn't see until after the creature from the Black Lagoon. And the design of the approved Gill Man was actually Disney animator Melissa Patrick even though her role in this whole uh, amazing uh, creature costume she made was deliberately downplayed by the makeup artist Bud Westmore, who was really, for half a century, got sole credit, which he shouldn't have. So, Melissa, thanks so much for creating the Gillman. His head's sitting right over here. Ben Chapman portrayed the Gillman for the majority of the scenes shot at Universal City above water, and they were filmed at Park Lake and Universal Backlot. And this guy was six foot five. And by the time they got him all decked out, he was about six, seven. So on land, when you see the creature on land, that's Ben Chapman. But you see the creature underwater, it was Riku Browning, who was about six foot three. And you can't really tell the difference, obviously, but you know, once you dig into the back of these movies, you kind of figure it out. And Riku Browning was actually approached because the uh, place that the underwater scenes filmed was in Florida in Silver Springs. And when the crew went there to take underwater shots ahead of filming the whole entire movie, they used him as a prop in a background. Let, can you just swim underwater for us? Because that's what he did at the time. He's a young man. And uh, they ended up offering him a job as the, the gill man underwater. Fantastic stuff. And there was one of these things that came across. According to Riku Browning, during shooting one day, a snapping turtle bit off the foot of the gill man costume. And they had to chase the turtle down to get the foot back. Can you imagine this horrible creature? It was a snapping turtle took his foot off. But I wanted to start the show with this because it leads me into the, everything else I'm talking about today, even though I've chewed up 15 minutes. See if I can get it all in without putting you to sleep. It reminds me of another time in my life. When Riku Browning's uh, death notice appeared, I thought, oh my gosh, how do I... I mean, it was just such an important time in my life. As a young kid, these movies were so uh, amazing to me because they related right to my dad and the efforts that he put into Halloween. It was all kind of a big bundle. I can remember going out probably when I was 14, 15, 16 and uh, making sure I was home on Friday or I think it was Saturday nights at 9 o'clock. WGN TV in Chicago would run this monster shows called Creature Features. And I would make sure I was home. Even though I probably should have been out doing other things, I was at home watching these movies. So... They're near and dear to me. Matter of fact, last night in honor of Riku Browning and all the rest of the people, listen, Patrick and all the rest of them, I watched Creature from the Black Lagoon, Creature Walks Among Us, Revenge of the Creature, uh, not in 3D, just uh, on the television. And I just enjoyed the shit out of them. So Riku, wherever you are, thank you so much. Godspeed. And if uh, if I get the chance, I'll have to figure out how to take a picture of this. Maybe I should put that. What I should do is put the mask of the creature on the head and walk around the neighborhood and see what happens. Probably not good. 
So the next time you hear this... You know the creature's getting close. You got to watch your ass. And it, by, in the movie, every time he was going to attack or even suggestion of attack, this played over. And over and over again. I don't know, 150 times in the movie. But it, it, what is it? It's like a, it's a trigger, right? And it's an anchor. So you, when you hear the music, much like Jaws, you know what's coming. And uh, Henry Mancini, actually, the great composer, is one of three men who uh, put that uh, together. So one more time for the creature. This past week also uh, was great because I had a, uh, a friend of mine, John Barry, country singer, songwriter, was up in the Chicago area. And it's amazing to me every time I get a, a little bit of time with JB, you know, one week he's at Nashville at the Grand Ole Opry to a standing room only crowd singing his heart out. And the next week he's in Arlington Heights outside of Chicago singing to 150 people just as he would if there was 5,000 in front of him. He's an amazing performer and a great guy. And he came up on uh, Wednesday, that was the concert, and he's kind of making his way across the north. And this is a guy who for years never came north of the Mason-Dixon line because he's a Georgia boy and a South Carolina boy, uh, now lives in Tennessee. Uh, but he he's a troubadour in every sense of the word. And you don't see a lot of that anymore. At least I, I don't. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a disc jockey per se. I don't play music per se, but I'm not I am really aware of the fact that it takes a lot of hard work to get this stuff done. So the guy's got gold records and platinum records and all like that. And yet he did a two and a half hour concert for 150 people. And it was so great. It's such an intimate setting at Hey Nani in Arlington Heights. So shout out to them for bringing him back year two. And I got to see some friends were there. The people I went to high school with, people I was grew up in the neighborhood with uh, and, and like that. And music brings a lot of folks together in one room. And he realized, you know, the power of that. Quite frankly, I thought, yeah, maybe do an hour, hour, 15 minutes, two hours and a half. And he played everything he could think of. He played requests for people. And when I left there, there was still a line waiting to get his autograph and buy his CDs and stuff. And so, like I said, it's the work ethic. And I, I learn that every time I spend time with him, he works hard at this and you know, he deserved lunch. So we went to Portillo's here in Chicago, which has got the best hot dogs, beef sandwiches, and everything else under the planet. I actually think the only reason he comes to Chicago is to go to Portillo's, but that could be another show. It was fantastic. So just shout out if you, you know, if you're a music person and even country music, you know, I think he's got one of the best voices in music, period. But uh, obviously one of the, the legends of country music and all his stuff that you want to look for, his music and such, is that www.johnberrybery.com and the next night he was off to Detroit and then he's going back over here and then he's going to and he's all over the map uh he's Christmas concerts his Christmas shows he's been doing for 26 years in a row they sell out you can't get tickets you know so he really makes his nut from like November through the end of the year when he does Christmas and the rest of the year he just goes around and sings and make people feel better kind of nice deal so GBA was great to see you and um Man, the guy's been doing this since 1979.
So it's pretty impressive. And what's even more impressive than that, which is really cool, I got a chance to sit down and have lunch with three guys, two of which I have not seen for 50 years. And the other one I haven't seen for almost 20 years. So one of the great things about Facebook, uh, and there's a lot of things that are not good, but it's all like everything else. It's how you look at it. It's how you perceive it, I think. Um, neither good nor bad is how you use it. Uh, I got contacted by a guy probably a year ago or a little bit more named Jerry. And I immediately recognized his last name. Jerry reached out to me and I've not heard from Jerry in a half century. And that's what Facebook does. And I was thrilled that. And now Jerry's four years older than I am. And yet we were all in the same neighborhood growing up. And that's when age really kind of didn't matter. We're all swimming in the same pool. Jerry is the uncle of Jimmy. And Jimmy and I graduated from Belding Grammar School in 1973. Had not seen Jimmy in 50 years. No question. And Jerry's best buddy growing up was Vinny. And Vinny was my next door neighbor. So there's this connect the dots chain there, right? And so Jerry put this lunch together. And I was so thrilled to see these guys, man. I mean, it's like time evaporated. Those 50 years just evaporated. Now we're all in our 60s. And yet... We felt, I felt like I was 12 or 13 or 14. And it was just a great thing. And those kind of connections, I think, the older I've gotten, be, have become really paramount to me. I, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because I have more yesterdays than tomorrows at this point in my life. And I want to squeeze out as much of that good stuff as I can. Like I do here when I walk in the studio and there's, you know, Godzilla over there. But I think about this stuff and, and to be able to implement it and be around people like that, it was just so great. We were there for three easy three and a half hours. And... I'm telling you, there is something magical about that. I mean, just this side of being, what the what? Over the years, you know, we all gone out, lived our lives and did some amazing things. And we're all working and raising kids and getting married and having our careers and working our asses off. And then one day, here we all are again at a table, yucking it up. It's amazing to me. And I started to think about, you know, the things we talked about. Some of it ties right back into this whole thing with creature from the black lagoon and the horror house in the basement and my dad dressing as Dracula and all comes back and waves to me. Vinny grew up next door with five sisters. There's six kids in their family. And we were, you know, as soon as the sun came up in the summertime, everybody's mixing and mingling at the park, which was walking distance. It's like a half a block away from our house. And the park at the time was the center of our universe. It's attached to the school and there was a huge field house there. And I, again, it's even though I write books and I write books for other people, and I don't know that I write them for a living, but there's something I'm fairly adept at. I fail with words to try and capture what it felt like to have that growing up. I, I, I always use it like this as a, as a perspective piece. In the years that I was spending with these guys, you know, from probably like 67 to 77, um, the world was a shitstorm to greater or lesser degree. We had Vietnam going on from 63 to 69. You know, we had uh, assassinations of JFK, RFK, MLK. They're burning Chicago down because of the, you know, the Democratic National Convention. I mean, when you, I look at the news today, yeah, it's not good, but you should have been here then. But that park, that playground was the leveling field, for lack of a better term, for anybody and everybody that came there. And so we weren't aware, even though a little bit aware, maybe I suppose, of what was going on the outside was the war, of course. We were all touched by that. But at the park, we were just able to be ourselves. And it was basketball. It was football. 
It was hockey. It was ice skating. It was horseshoes. You know, we played more horseshoes. You could hear the clang of the horseshoes for blocks. You could hear, my dad could hear them on the porch, a block and a half away, clang. Friday night, they'd have these horseshoe tournaments, man. You had to get the horseshoe pit just right. There was clay in there mixed with dirt, and you, you'd wet it down, and they'd put a burlap down, and then you'd wet it again and put more burlap down. You had to get it just right. And Mr. Atchison, Ted Atchison, was the main guy there. We called him Atch, and he ruled the roost, you know, and what Atch said goed. And he had this saying that I had not heard for so long when Vinny said it, no payee, no playee. We had to pay him, what, a dime, a nickel, a quarter, I don't know, to, to be on these teams so he could use that money to buy little miniature trophies for people who were the winners. And that's back in a day when not everybody got a trophy just because you participated. If you won, you got a trophy. If you lost, you just picked your ass up and started over again. Pretty good lesson. And it's just got so vivid for me at lunch. And I, I, I was giggly. I mean, I don't get giggly, but I was freaking giggly. I was just so thrilled to be with these guys. And Jimmy, Jimmy was the guy in charge of the patrol, you know, and corner, patrol boys. And when Jimmy was walking on his rounds, you better get your ass together. I had a corner not far from my house with that orange belt on. And, you know, in the wintertime, once you came off your corner, you get some hot chocolate in the school. He was also in charge, I think, of the, the color guard, which I was on. You know, you'd march down for the assemblies and do the Pledge of Allegiance and the whole thing. Maybe he was in charge of the milk boys, for all I know. When there was crates of milk stacked under the stairs at the school, you'd dole out a little carton of milk. You'd get a carton of milk at school. Is that not the best thing? I think it is. And then Jerry. Jerry's four years older, and uh, he was the kind of guy that you know you kind of look up to because he was older, and he's playing with the bigger guys who are playing softball. Jerry's a, a left-hander, and we were talking about as I remember, Jimmy was the first guy in our class, in 73 class, hit the ball over the fence. I don't know how far it is. I don't know, 150 feet? I have no clue. But to me, when Jimmy hit that ball over the fence, everything changed. Can you believe a guy from our class hit the ball over the fence? He was stout then and he's stout now. So Jerry, his uncle, is a lefty. And all you can do then was hit the field house. That was like, you know, like right field and Wrigley Field. You just put it out on the porch. And to watch these guys that were older than us every Friday night, man, the whole neighborhood would come out to watch softball games, 16-inch softball, on concrete, at the park. Man, so lucky, so lucky to have that. So thanks to Jerry for putting this all together. I know this is going to be something we're going to do more of. Uh, he's offered to have us come to his house and see his Shrine of Cub and Ron Santos stuff in the summertime and have a barbecue, and I can't wait. I can't wait. And it's something rejuvenating to me. I'll go back to the neighborhood to get a haircut. And by the way, I don't have hair anymore. I have quills. I mean, that's basically what's happened to me. I've become like a, you know, some sort of quilled beast. So when a guy's cut my, the hair in my head, I get, chick, 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 chick. it's like he's trimming a hedge. But when I go back there, I swim in it again. And I need that. I need it in the days that we live in now because of all that's going on. You know, we didn't have all these disruptions. We didn't have 24-7 news service. There was four channels. All came trickling through four channels, and it wasn't on at 4, 5, 6, and 10, noon, 1, 2, and 3, and then 4, 5, 6, and 10. Again, it wasn't done like that. So that interference from the outside was, was not as prevalent as it is today. And I think that's got a lot to do with it. So pushing that unsocial media stuff back to me is always a challenge, but it's offset by a lunch with three guys who I have not seen for a very, very, very long time. It was very, very cool. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how great that was. 
And finally, uh, a little perspective piece. I put some gas in the car yesterday and we have, you know, these days cars get 30, 40 miles a gallon. Back in the day when my dad was driving in the 70s, what, 9, 10, 12 miles a gallon, 14 maybe, they were not efficient in uh, their use of fuel, let's put it that way. And I was putting, filling up the car and, you know, we gas prices are the kind of thing that for me, I don't let them bother me anymore. It's low hanging fruit. You know, they're going to go up and down. They've been going up and down for decades. And so I know that you know, it's difficult when you're driving in the morning to see gas for 329 and then you come back in the afternoon, it's 389, you know, and we have no control over that. But I also came to the point years ago that I'm, I'm just going to let that go because I can't control it. It'll drive you up the wall. And there's a lot of arguing back and forth. And, you know, for the record, if you do any diligence in digging and spend a little time in the industry and how it works, um, no, no sitting president or unseated president controls the gas prices. So you can complain about Biden or Trump or Obama or Clinton or the rest of them and go all the way back to Nixon. It doesn't matter. Presidents and they have zero control over that. They can try to do some things. But anyway, long way around. I was thinking about, I wonder what gas was like in 1943. I don't know where that popped into my head 80 years ago. I'm sitting there filling up going, I wonder what gas was in 1943. It turns out in 1943, gas was 19 cents a gallon. And when you say something like that, well, 19 cents, like, well, it'd be great to be back then and have it. Well, you're also talking about World War II. Nice trade-off. So gas at 19 cents a gallon in 1943. And get this, adjusted for inflation, which is how we live our lives. It's always up and down, right? Adjusted for inflation, the 19 cents a gallon gas in 80 years ago, in 1943, is the equivalent of $4 a gallon in 2023. (laughs) <laughs> so while it'd be great to go back and have gas for 19 cents a gallon, that's not going to happen. And it's basically the same price adjusted for inflation in 2023. Go look it up. And I took it a step further because after I went and got gas, not that you need to know this, but I needed some underwear, you know? So I went out and buy underwear and I don't need any, you know, it's just like, here's a pack of underwear. There's five of them. Five underwear cost me 20 bucks. It's less than five bucks a piece. But all of a sudden, my mind's working about the worth of gas and what gas was back then. And the $20 that I spent on underwear, how much gas would that have bought me back in 1943? About two years worth. Now, this all means nothing, but I thought it was a great way to end the show. Little perspective never hurt anybody I know. So next time you're out buying underwear, think about gas in 1943, and it really costs the same then as it does now. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what I'm saying, but that's where we're going to out it today. Great to have you. Thanks so much for the uh, subscribers who keep the show going. Speaking of money, they plunk down 20 bucks a month, five bucks a week, 66 cents a day to keep this kind of stuff going. And I really appreciate it. So that 20 bucks back in the day, nah, never mind. <laughs> I'm going to leave you with a little bit from John Barry. I think this is his best song that he's ever done. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. Every doubt, every time you're down and out When you're hurt, feeling shame Oh, you're numb and all your pain When you think you've lost your way Oh, you're too far gone to pray He's still waiting there to say You're beautiful
hearted with 